Hey there, welcome to Disco in the Library, where I and some featured guests will be covering many different topics to assist and help you grow at Southern Ohio Medical Center. We hope that you learn something along the way. I am your host, Megan Gladel. Let's dive into this episode. Hello, today we are continuing our Preceptor 101 series with Session 5, Prioritization and Communication. Since publication on the Institute of Medicine report regarding medical errors to Air as Human, Building a Safer Healthcare System, which came out in 1999, increased attention has been paid to the quality of nursing care and safe outcomes for our patients. It seems, though, to anyone who's been involved in our present-day healthcare system that despite all the excellent education nurses receive, in the design and redesign of health systems, patients are still at danger of suffering less than high-quality outcomes. Nursing care is complex, and teaching the preceptee how to correctly organize, prioritize, and make decisions is essential for the safety and quality of care that our patients receive. Now, keep in mind, this preceptor course is geared towards nursing, just because that's where most of our literature is and most of our research is done for preceptors but this course and all of the preceptor 101 courses can be used for anybody in the healthcare system not just nursing but if i mention nurse instead of the word preceptee they are interchangeable okay just as a reminder we are as somc approved as a provider for nursing continuing professional development by the ohio nurses association and accredited approver by the american nurses credentialing centers commission on accreditation which means that you can get continuing education credits or contact hours for this education in order to do that participants must complete the electronic quiz and evaluation to receive continuing education credit so after you listen to this you can return to net learning and take that quiz to get continuing education credit there are no relevant financial relationships for anybody in a position to control content activity and the expiration date is july 31st of 2025 unless we deem that everything is still relevant and then we will continue that All right, I had to pause. I apologize. So <clears throat> communication among healthcare professionals, right? And in many instances, poor communication results in patient injury and death. Consider these statistics. In 2004, there was a study by the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality, and they found that 70 to 80% of medical errors are related, related excuse me, to communication issues. So we're going to talk about communication and prioritization today. The Joint Commission estimates that 63% of Sentinel events happen because of poor communication. And in 2005, a study by the Joint Commission found that 70% of preventable hospital mishaps occurred because of communication breakdowns. Other studies based on this last one that was just mentioned have shown that half of those breakdowns, there were 70% of preventable hospital mishaps, half of those breakdowns occur during handoffs, which is why we do bedside shift report, transfer report, all of those things. So handoff occurs when one healthcare professional reports to another at either the change of shift or transition of care. So transfer from unit to unit, facility to facility, wherever it may be, when there is a change and shift from nurse to nurse or when there is communication between physicians. And one method that we use to reduce the incidence of miscommunications is SBAR, which is up on the screen. It was developed by the U.S. Navy, and SBAR method was adopted by the healthcare industry then in the 1990s. So it's been around for 30 years. 
It's an acronym that stands for Situation, Background, Assessment, and Recommendation, and it helps structure the information being communicated, as in the following example, which I'm going to read to you, which focuses on the nurse who needs to contact a medical doctor or other healthcare professional about the change in the patient's position. So, for example, for our situation, what is happening at the present time? Of course, we should teach our preceptees to identify themselves first their, and their location, and then they should state the patient's name and the problem that they're calling about. The nurse should then verbalize what has been assessed and what changes in the patient's status has been discovered. Okay, so that is a, an example of our situation. For background, what were the circumstances leading up to the situation? give a brief history and current symptoms. We can also include neurological, cardiovascular, respiratory, GI, genitourinary status, any current lab work, and if it's relevant, compare that to past lab work, like if you had a change in hemoglobin hematocrit levels to a previous or current drug levels to a previous. Any current medications, IV lines, if they're pertinent to the situation we're calling about. For assessment, what's your basic assessment of the patient? what's the problem, what the problem might not be. Um, the nurse should also state whether the patient's deteriorating. And if the patient is unstable, then we should talk about what action we recommend to be taken. So that brings us to recommendation. What are your recommendations to the doctor or the healthcare professional that you're calling? So the preceptee should ask, what should we do to correct the problem? I request that you, and then we give an example of what we think should happen. So, you know, is our patient deteriorating? Then we need, do, I recommend that we transfer them to critical care. I recommend that you come see the patient. Maybe we need to order X, Y, and Z lab work, other tests or medications. Um, if the patient doesn't get better, then the nurse should consider when do they recontact that provider that they called. And we need to remind our preceptees to read back the recommendations and new orders that they receive when they're on that phone call. All right. Many new nurses and students consider SBAR to be an organizational tool, and it does. It assists them in charting and focusing on what's important in the healthcare and the care of our patients, and then in communicating patient needs to the physician or other healthcare personnel. So there are other SBAR resources out there. I believe I have it on the resources page, but it's www.ihi.org backslash resources, backslash pages, backslash tools, backslash SBAR toolkit dot ASPX. All right, so after SBAR, that leads us to phone skills. So after the nurse or preceptee has gathered the assessment information on their patient, if it's needed, the information must then be communicated to the appropriate healthcare provider. And I will tell you, um, as a previous nursing instructor, as the person that, you know, covers a lot of new nurse orientation, we're, they're not worried about their patient crashing or coding for the first time. The most stressful thing that they worry about is calling a physician or calling a provider. They really worry about having to do that um, because they know how to do CPR, but they don't feel like they know how to make a phone call to a provider. So it's really important for a preceptor to be able to help them do that. And ways that we can help develop the skill include first demonstrating. Let them watch and listen to how you make those phone calls. Let them watch and listen how you gather that information and you put it in SBAR format before you call. Um, let them watch and listen how you take the order and how you repeat everything back when you're on that phone call. So let them observe first. Then 
practice with them. Pretend to be the provider, pretend that you're on a phone call and let them go through their whole spiel and then give them recommendations on what they can improve. Um, also have them practice writing down what they want to say um, or using a blank SBAR form to write that down. So having them get organized beforehand is really important. Also make sure before they call to get a fresh set of vitals or check labs, whatever current ass assessment information is pertinent to while you're calling because there is nothing, I know personally, I can remember my first phone call to a physician. They asked me for something that I absolutely should have had and I drew a blank and had no idea and I could not get that information for them. And I felt, you can't see my fingers, but I felt one inch tall whenever they asked me that and I couldn't give them that information. So my preceptor thought it would be a good experience for me to get burned. I'm telling you right now, don't do that to your preceptees. Have them be prepared and ready. That way you can build their confidence and they feel good about that phone call. All right. We also want to remind the preceptee that the provider that they're calling might not be familiar with that patient. Maybe it's a hospitalist that's never seen that patient. Maybe it's weekend coverage, locums, those kind of things. So we have to remember that they may not know this patient, they may not know the case, and we need to be prepared to give them as much information as possible. All right. Um, and then looking um see if there was any other key points on here. All right, so documentation is up next on this phone call. We want them to document what time they called and who they spoke with. If it wasn't the provider, if it was the answering service or whatever, we need to document that. That way, if we called multiple times without an answer, we have documentation. We also want to have them document um, the orders that they received. So note those orders, or if they didn't get any orders, if the provider didn't give them anything, they need to note that provider was called, no orders given. And then, like I said, if they had multiple unsuccessful attempts to contact, we need to note that, and then we need to help them review the policy if they are unsuccessful in reaching somebody who's next down the line to contact and how they handle that. Unfortunately, in some point in their career, preceptees will encounter a rude doctor or healthcare provider um, while speaking on the phone. The preceptees should not retaliate by being rude as well, so we need to advise our preceptees and role model this for them, being calm and staying polite. Even in difficult situations, we need to help them state what they need to say, even when they're getting flustered or if somebody is being argumentative, um, because they need to get out what they called about and they need to make sure that they're advocating for their patients and relaying that information to the provider. And as always at SOMC, we have zero tolerance for rudeness, for um bullying, belittling, any of that. So if it is an escalated situation, it is absolutely appropriate to report that incident to the nurse manager or supervisor. So teaching them that they don't have to take that, that we can stand up for them and advocate for our preceptees is really important in this situation. 
Another key thing with this is role play. Before you call that first time, role play with them and maybe like do it the correct way first and how the provider should handle it. And then say, let's try it again and prepare them that you're going to be difficult and that you want them to try to handle the situation as best they can. And then depending on what happens, you know, coach them and say, okay, if that happens, what should you do? That way they're more prepared. Reminding the preceptee that he or she is the patient advocate and that information has to be shared in order to provide quality care for the patient is most important. All right, so daily debriefings, sharing information with others. Um, I think teaching occurs really well in this situation. So, you know, after you get bedside shift report and you're going about your day, with them and you're planning and you're prioritizing, they should be asking you questions. But not only should they be asking you questions, you also, as time goes on, can ask them questions and help them build those critical thinking skills. So asking them, tell me why you're doing this or why you did it that way. That's perfectly acceptable because they should be able to vocalize and tell you, this was my thought process. Another question that's great is why did or why didn't you decide to intervene at this time? And maybe they have a really good reason, or maybe they need a little coaching to try something different next time. Another one, why did you make this choice or what would have happened if you missed this clue? So sometimes how things get missed is work patterns and that can make things really challenging. So we're helping them build good habits and good work patterns. Researchers have found that several factors disrupt work patterns, including missing equipment, supplies, interruptions, waiting for needed resources, communication inconsistencies, and lack of time. Nurses are constantly ordering and reordering care or prioritizing based on many factors, all the while being interrupted by a variety of sources. The nurse's thought process, including the prioritization of care and the ability to carry out that care, are often disrupted. In addition, outside factors, like we mentioned, missing equipment, supplies, and medications that have to be searched for, obtained, called for, maybe even short staffing and other everyday factors create additional obstacles to care. So there was a report that was made in 2006 called Miss Nursing Care, a qualitative report, and it noted nine different patient care activities that were often missed by nurses. So let's talk about those missing clues. All right. So things that are most often missed in daily care include ambulation, turning and positioning of patients, delayed or misfeedings, providing patient education, discharge planning and emotional support, offering hygiene and basic care, completing INO documentation, and patient surveillance. So in this report, the nurses gave the following reasons for missing care. Staffing issues was a big one, the amount of time required for particular nursing intervention, and poor use of existing resources and ineffective delegation. So the author investigated an experience they called a complexity compression, which occurred when nurses are expected to take on additional unplanned tasks and activities in a shorter time frame while also completing their plan work. So we've all been there, right? We've all made our plan and prioritized in our mind and on our nursing brain that we've documented how our day's going to go. And then lo and behold, something popped up that you didn't plan for. Maybe it's multiple admissions. Maybe it's somebody's getting taken out of order for surgery, whatever your prioritized plan was, sometimes it does not go the way you plan for it to go. 
And so nurses use not only their clinical, medical, scientific, pharmacological, and nursing process knowledge to make decisions regarding and planning the care that they deliver, but they also use what they know about the unit they work on, the availability of their resources like additional staff and equipment, their coworker relationships and system processes. There are days that you look at the schedule and you see who you're working with and you're like, today's going to go super smooth. This team works well together. I know that no matter what happens, we'll be able to handle it and we'll do it well. And then there are other days that it's got a different list of team members. And you know, no matter how hard you plan that day, there are things going to happen just because of who you're working with. And we've all been there. This knowledge, together with current status of your patients, is used to make decisions regarding how and when you're going to deliver your nursing care. All right. So there was another article that was developed and says nurses have strategies to deal with factors that make their work hard. And these strategies include the following, and they should be encouraged by the preceptor to your preceptees. Ready? The first one is think ahead. Have a plan, right? And then be proactive. Don't wait for things to fall apart. Set things in place and be ready for the unexpected. Um, employing strategic delegation. And I feel like this is a really hard one for new, for new nurses and new preceptees. I have not developed a PowerPoint for this yet, but that's one of the topics I would like to cover in this course because um, I just feel like people are um, uncomfortable with proper delegation and knowing how to delegate. And especially for nurses, we don't have a lot of unlicensed personnel at the bedside to be able to delegate to. So it's kind of like, mm, who do you tell? What do you tell? How much do you let them do? So hopefully there will be a session on that and more to come on that. But showing them how you can effectively and safely delegate and what they need to follow up on afterwards is a really great tool that a preceptor can pass along to a preceptee. Using handwritten notes for remembering and tracking, so a to-do list. I am huge on a to-do list in my job now. I was even bigger on that when I was on the floor because if I didn't have a plan and a to-do list, I would get completely lost. Um, the other thing that goes right along with is stacking or clustering their care. How to bundle things together and make better use of their time is really important as well. Stacking is the invisible decision-making work of nurses about the what, how, and when of delivering nursing care to a assigned group of patients. All right, so let's talk more about stacking and clustering of care. We want to anticipate the care that's going to be given during the shift, even before we come to the shift. That's easier to do whenever you've maybe worked the day before and kind of know what patients you're going to have. Um, but having a plan is always important. We also want to determine what care is possible, given the resources and equipment that we have available, and determine when and how the care is going to be delivered. Nurses perform this cognitive work constantly during the clinical day, so how successfully this is accomplished or not will influence everything from our work environment, quality of care we provide, and safe patient outcomes to recruitment and retention of new nursing staff. If it's always a disaster on your floor when you have students or nursing interns, they're probably not going to work there, but if you guys run like a well-oiled machine and you make people feel welcome and you feel like it's a good teaching and learning floor, they're going to want to hang out with you all and learn how to be a nurse like that. It is necessary to understand how nurses perform this cognitive work in order to instill these skills in a preceptee. So experienced nurses will arrive on the unit ready to form a mental list of care and activities that take place as they begin their shift. 
This mental list together with immediate observations, like such as their patient assignment, including the number of patients they have, their diagnoses and locations on the unit, and other unit-related activities, like do they need to do narcotic counts, supply inventory, crash cart checks, etc., are the basis of the prioritization list. Each patient assignment, observation, patient request, provider requests and orders, healthcare team member requests, and care encounters add to the continuous reordering of initial priorities. And you do this throughout your day naturally because you've learned how to do it. But when something happens to change your plan, you just automatically fit it in and reorder your care. If we do live in an unpredictable world. Um, traditional healthcare has been dominated by a predictable worldview, they assume that our units, our healthcare systems, and our patient responses are going to be predictable. And we know in the real world that doesn't exist. It also assumes that even when the outcome of a situation goes wrong, you know, that a lot of outside people, not people inside the hospital, but a lot of outside people, our families of our patients and things like that, they want to blame the healthcare worker, for example. And we've seen this in recent media and news. If a nurse commits an error, it's always assumed that the nurse didn't follow proper procedure. But we know sometimes that it's the documentation system, the EHR that breaks down. Sometimes things get put in the computer wrong. You know, there's lots of things that doesn't always equate to nursing error. While it could be the case, it could be nursing error, many potential causative factors may not be investigated and the cure for the problem is usually deemed to be re-education of the nurse. We've seen that, right? There's a good article by the Institute of Medicine that's called The Air is Human. It came out in 1999 and it talks about systems rather than individuals are being reviewed in order to increase the quality and safety of patient care. So just a plug here, if we don't know that there's a problem with a system, we can't fix it. So if you do have a near miss or a precept T of yours has a near miss or you have an error, please report it because we know it's not always the nurse's fault, right? It could absolutely be something else. So we can't fix it though if we don't know about it. Another factor is complexity science um, and it talks about how systems can adapt to a changing environment and that you can use those complexity science systems to explain the intricacy of nursing care delivery for one patient within the context of a larger assignment within a larger unit within a larger department within a larger hospital so you know it's kind of like um it reminds me of whenever you were in like elementary science and you had kingdom phylum genus all those things that's kind of how the hospital system is right you've got one patient in a room that's part of a nursing care assignment that's part of a unit that's part of a department that's part of the big hospital system but there's multiple breakdowns throughout all of that there could be so that system the patient and the nurse are dynamic we're interconnected but interdependent at the same time adaptive and diverse so these systems change and adapt when confronted with situations and we have to view nursing care through that lens that it's going to constantly change and give insight to the challenges. For example, if a bedside nurse commits an error, there has to be an understanding of complexity science to help to review the situation to focus on the broader de details of what led to the error by assuming that multiple issues may have contributed to those factors rather than focusing on one action of one individual. It's probably not the situation, right? It's probably much bigger than just that nurse made an error. There's probably other factors. There are also trade-offs 
Nurses manage continuous care of patients with unit-related activities as well. And nurses are rarely able to complete a task without interruption. And that's so true. We use a lot of videos to teach a new nurse orientation. And there's a really good one um, that safety uses as part of new employee and new nurse orientation that kind of shows it's got a young patient. I believe they were there for an appendectomy, but it shows how like people didn't properly wash their hands after leaving other patients room. And I think it was MRSA that another family member came out and touched the desk while wearing gloves from their contaminated patient's room. And then a healthcare provider went and put their hands on the same desk close to after and then took it in and touched the IV without washing hands and wearing gloves. And that young person that was in for a routine appendectomy contacted MRSA and passed away. So lots of breakdowns, um, that happen without, you know, the nurses knowing all of those factors and being solely responsible. There's lots of other evolving factors throughout. So RNs provide nursing care in the midst of that continual trade-off decisions they make regarding the most important activity for the moment, how it should be done, and what can wait until later or not be done at all. Another factor is mindfulness. The nurse's ability to make safe, well-informed clinical decisions is based on the nurse's ability to pay attention to and respond to the changing patient information. Nothing is stagnant in healthcare. Everything is dynamic and ever-changing. Many nurses, of course, do this really successfully and deliver high-quality, safe care. The fact that patient care items are missed is often the result of these trade-off decisions made by nurses throughout the course of a shift. So sometimes we're prioritizing things that are higher priority and lower priority things get missed or overlooked. So when decisions are traded off, the results can place the safety of the patient at risk. All right. So then we have to figure out how to prioritize. Let me switch my slide here. All right, prioritization is another skill that's primarily learned through time and clinical experience. So we learn as we go, right? And we get better at prioritizing the more practice we have. But it's a part of critical thinking. Mo first priority goes to what the nursing action is deemed most important first, and then goes next most important, and so on. All nurses immediately in nursing school, I can remember that first quarter, because I'm old and we did quarters and not semesters, but we learned Maslow's hierarchy of needs, which address psychological needs of the patient. So like hunger, thirst, etc., upwards toward the safety, security, and so on. And we need to remind the preceptee of those hierarchy of needs and have them review literature addressing the needs list. Although it's logical, students and new nurses, they get easily stressed and overwhelmed and they want to be task focused. They want to, they want to prioritize and reprioritize their care based on those tasks. And sometimes they go from caring for one or two patients to an entire assignment and they forget those Maslow things. They're so worried about being able to take care of all four or more patients, getting all their tasks done, that they forget about the most basic care elements. So as preceptors, how can we prompt the new nurse to prioritize care without telling them what the first priority should be, right? Helping them recognize it on their own and building that knowledge with them. All right, so how do we help new nurses set priorities? And here's the recommendation. Ask them questions that encourage critical thinking, including what are you going to do first and why? Of everything that you need to do, what task is the most important and why do you feel that way? What could happen if you don't do this task right now? And what is most important to this patient? 
All right, the preceptor should return to the list of questions throughout the shift when the preceptee is confronted with changing situations and patient care needs. These questions encourage the preceptee to make informed decisions regarding and prioritizing care. It should be emphasized that the task that has the highest priority is completed first, and then each additional task should be finished before we start another one, because if not, that's how things get missed. Remaining tasks and any new tasks should be reprioritized based on patient information and assessments that are completed. The preceptor should be available to assist the preceptee in redirecting and refocusing his or her thought process throughout the shift. After the shift, a post-conference review or debriefing after a patient care situation will also help focus the preceptee on care that was administered and why. For example, did the patient experience an emergency or a decline? Prioritization can be learned after the care was given by using these modified questions. So after the care was given, we can ask, tell me why you did this. What was your thoughts? Why did or didn't you decide to intervene at that time? Why did you make this choice? And what would happen if you'd have missed this clue? So we've reviewed those questions multiple times. They're on a previous slide. So how do we prioritize what to do first? There's a couple different theories. I'm going to place them up on these screens that you're seeing right now. So the first one, and I really like this one, is the five Fs. You may or may not see questions on these when you go back to net learning to take your test. But these are the five components for prioritizing patient needs. The first one is fatal. And with a fatal prioritization, if you did not act, so if you failed to act on this, it could cause death or injury. An example is the failure to rescue a patient who's in respiratory distress. So you walk in, you take vitals, you know, respirations are four. If you don't recognize that, that could cause detrimental effect to this patient. Fundamental is the next, and this includes a task that's essential to professional definition of the job. For example, completing a physical assessment. That's a fundamental part of your job. You have to have that skill set. It's done every day. Next up is frequent. These are tasks that might need to be done many times during your shifts, like taking vital signs, conducting neuro uh, schedules, neuro checks. So these are frequent. These are multiple times during your shift. Up next is fixed. A fixed text is like administering medication. It has to be done in a certain time frame. So maybe it's um, medication administration, maybe you have to do an assessment multiple times during your shift. Like I know when I worked peds, we did them at 7, 11, and at 3 was when we did our multiple assessments. Um, glucose checks are kind of at a fixed time because you do them before meals, right? You check sugars before meals, that way you can administer your basal bolus insulin, your bolus of insulin. So fixed tasks. And then finally, we have facility. And those tasks are involved in the aspects of the job set aside by standards of the organization, like using AIDIT every time that we have a patient contact. So I like the fatal, fundamental, frequent, fixed, and facility. Obviously, fatal is the most important because it could cause a major problem for our patient and facility, things like AIDIT. They're very important and we should absolutely do them, but it takes the lowest priority. All right, there's another option. It's called Christine's Cure for Components for Prioritizing Patient Needs. C is for critical. It means potentially life-threatening events such as respiratory distress or chest pain. So critical. 
U is for urgent. Any events that involve safety needs or pain control are considered urgent. For example, a patient might have low blood sugar, so that needs treated or increased rating of pain they need medication for. R is routine. Responsibilities like assessments, checking vitals, medication administration, and dressing changes. Um, e is for extras, things that the patient might request, like ice chips, warm blankets, those kind of things. So they are less important than your critical things, which are most important. So going back to stacking or clustering care, helping your preceptee realize that they need to anticipate the care or be ready for it determine the resources that they have or that they don't have, and plan when and how they're going to deliver that care. Um, and sometimes that plan gets put to pot, right? Sometimes that does not work out, but we want to try to help them have a plan, help them lay out their brain and prioritize what are they going to do first and why. Of all the things that they need to do, what's most important? Why do they feel that way? And help them structure that thinking. What could happen if we don't do it right now? and what ultimately is most important for this patient. And there are your references. If you guys have any questions, please contact Workforce Development, extension 2552. In order to receive your continuing education credits and your contact hour certificate, please return to Net Learning and complete your quiz. Have a great day.